Excellent. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for your uh, attention up to this point, and I will try not to uh, strain it. <coughs> Consider the following three scenarios. A woman meets a billionaire playboy whose conviction he can buy anything and anyone he wants initially disgusts her. Shortly after declaring she wants nothing to do with him, she agrees to take a trip on his private jet to Miami Beach. After fleeing in disgust again at his vulgar displays of wealth, she agrees to return. Shortly thereafter, they're engaged to be married. The billionaire displays an unacknowledged homoerotic attachment to his best friend, an apparently honorable man, born poor, whom the billionaire's father brought up as a kind of companion and model for his dissolute son. The poor friend has nothing but contempt for the billionaire. The friend and the billionaire's wife eventually fall in love and elope after the billionaire is killed by the friend ostensibly in the course of defending the wife from one of her husband's jealous, drunken rages. <clears throat> Two, a single mother moves to New York to pursue her dream, to become a professional actress. She pursues her career with single-minded dedication until she succeeds and becomes a major international film star. In the meantime, though, she has become estranged, both from her daughter, whom she hardly ever sees, she is sent to boarding school as soon as the mother can afford it, and from her principal romantic interest, a man she earlier rejected because he displayed insufficient dedication to his own artistic career, he was a photographer but took a lucrative job in advertising, and insufficient appreciation of her ambitions. Her teenage daughter refused the close relationship with her mother she desires, claims to have fallen in love with her mother's own former lover. Both the mother and the daughter are distressingly ignorant about the life of a woman with whom they have lived for years, originally as their housekeeper, but now in some capacity that is not clear to any of them. She is African-American and is raising a daughter of her own. Her daughter has a very light complexion, so light that she can pass as white in 1950s America. The daughter deeply resents her much darker complexion's mother, who is immediately recognizable as African-American, and does everything she can to escape and avoid her. Eventually, she succeeds in running away and passing as white, working as a dancer in less than reputable cabaret shows in Vegas and elsewhere. When her mother dies, the daughter rushes home only to catch the tail end of her mother's lavish funeral. Her mother appears to have saved quite a bit of money and have many friends, which comes as a surprise to the White family with whom she has lived since the story began. At the funeral, the daughter throws herself on her mother's ornate coffin, racked with guilt for having rejected her. Three, a rich widow, presumably in her late 40s or early 50s, in a wealthy bedroom community within commuting distance of New York, falls in love with her handsome gardener, who is much younger and of a lower social class. The gardener, a free spirit and devotee of Thoreau, wants to marry her, but shows no interest in participating in the widow's social life of country clubs and genteel cocktail parties. Nevertheless, he agrees to make an attempt at getting to know her friends and children, which predictably ends in disaster. She insists they put off marriage until her children and social circle come around to the idea, but he insists that, his work, that this will not work, she must choose between him and social propriety. Pressured by her adult children, who insist that her marrying him would ruin their lives, she breaks it off with the gardener. Consigned to a lonely existence, her only companion the TV that various others have urged on her, she comes to regret her mistake. She goes to the house of the gardener, presumably to resume their affair, but seems to lose heart at the last moment. He sees her from afar and comes running, but falls from a great height suffering a grievous injury. When she later learns of this, she rushes to his bedside. He awakens, and they reconcile. Or so it seems. 
you may immediately recognize these as the scenarios of three melodramas directed by Douglas Sirk while he was at Universal Studios, respectively Written on the Wind, 1956, Imitation of Life, 1959, and the film you've just seen, All That Heaven Allows, 1955. But I take it these are also recognizable as scenarios in which the characters acquire, or more often persistently fail to acquire, but instead avoid and suppress, in some cases actively flee, self-knowledge. Specifically, knowledge of their own desires, knowledge of what they want. Cirque's melodramas are not typically about successful self-knowledge of one's desires. They are about the vicissitudes of self-knowledge, the conditions of its success as well as its failure, the conditions handsome and unhandsome for knowledge of one's desire, as the late great Stanley Cavell, following Emerson, might have put it. The other two films in what I like to think of as Cirque's self-knowledge trilogy present deeply pessimistic visions of characters sunk in self-deception. In Imitation of Life, the central character, played by Lana Turner, stumbles through most of the film in deep ignorance of who she is, what she wants, and even what she is doing. By the end, she acquires some degree of self-understanding, but it is ambiguous and fragile. Cirque leaves us with little reason to think that this knowledge will persist. Written on the wind is the bleakest. As I read it, the two bad characters, played by Robert Stack and Dorothy Malone, are more or less clear on what they want though in Stack's case he may be ignorant of why he wants it, even as they careen towards their own destruction. While the central good characters, played by Rock Hudson and Lauren Bacall, remain as ignorant of their motives and the disastrous consequences of those motives for the bad characters at the end of the film as they were at the beginning. All that heaven allows is arguably the handsomest and happiest case of self-knowledge of the three. This does not mean that its characters attain complete self-transparency at the end, or that they are entirely free of self-deception. But I do think that by the end of the film, Carrie, Jane Wyman, has learned something about herself and what she wants, and that this may be the best you can get in the Circean moral universe. The dramatic significance of Carrie's desire, and her own fraught access to that desire, is established from the moment Carrie meets Ron. In their very first encounter, which I will now play for you, I often wish I knew more about gardening. Do you think I ought to take it up? Only if you think you'd like it. Carrie's question explicitly invokes not only the question of what Carrie wants, but what Carrie thinks about what she wants. Sorry. That was not, in fact, the, the thing that I wanted to play. Um, sorry, no, that was what I wanted to play. But what Carrie thinks about what she wants, what she believes or knows about her desires. It also establishes Carrie and Ron in an ambiguous relation to the question of what Carrie desires. Ron interprets a harmless attempt at small talk as a literal question. Do you think I should take up gardening? And gives it a literal and somewhat cold answer. Only if you want to. As in, don't ask me what you should want. Figure it out for yourself. <laughs> Is Carrie seeking Ron's approval or encouragement of her desire to garden? Or has Ron merely misinterpreted her? The very next scene abounds in misinterpretations, or more accurately, misinterpretations of Carrie's desire. First, her daughter Kay expresses approval of Carrie's date with Harvey, noting that Harvey does not seem interested in sex, no old goat he, and thus assuming the same lack of interest on her mother's part. Her son Ned is taken aback by her low-cut red dress, concerned that it will scare off Harvey, which Kay in turn writes off as an Oedipal reaction which she defines incorrectly as Ned's resentment of Carrie's sexual attractiveness to other men, though the more likely explanation is Ned's resentment of his mother's sexual attraction to other men, 
for continuing interest in a sexual relationship, which Ned, like everyone else, takes to be signaled by the red dress. It is notable that in diagnosing the Oedipal structure of her own family, the budding social worker Kay cannot bring herself to acknowledge her mother's desire for a sexual relationship, rather than celibate companionship with the over-the-hill Harvey. I should like to note, Harvey seems like a nice guy, and people that write about this movie always give Harvey such a hard time, so let's just note that Harvey's not a bad guy. But must displace this desire onto unnamed others, those who incongruently retain sexual desire past the appropriate age. During Carrie's date with Harvey at the country club, her red dress again incites interpretation, both by the town gossip Mona, who assumes it's a ploy for attention, as well as the loathsome Howard, who takes it to signal Carrie's openness to an affair. If this weren't enough to cement the question in the viewer's mind of Carrie's desire, the next important interaction she has with Ron centers explicitly around the question of what Carrie wants. Yes? I was wondering. If you're not too busy, you might like to go over to my place and see them. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid I can't today. Oh. Well, of course, if you can't. Oh, Mr. Kirby. Yes, Mrs. Guy? Well, I was just thinking that maybe if... You've changed your mind. All right. Let's go. When Ron later declares his love for Carrie in the old mill that he has transformed into a kind of rustic bungalow, in his anticipation of his eventually occupying it with Carrie as a married couple, she initially rejects him. This bit of dialogue presents the dramatic conflict as a conflict within Carrie, between her love of Ron and her concern for the other things that matter. Ron diagnoses this as a matter of fear. Running away from something important because you're afraid. Afraid? Mm -hmm. Of what? Many things. Ron presents himself as knowing Carrie's desires better than she does, as offering her a kind of knowledge of herself, in particular, knowledge that she is afraid of the disapproval of her children and her social clique. As we've seen, Ron is not the only one who thinks he knows what Carrie wants better than she does herself. At this point, Carrie refuses the putative self-knowledge Ron offers here. The dialogue continues. What is Ron right about? He's just told Carrie that she's afraid, and she interprets this as a confirmation of her decision not to marry him, as putting out of question their marriage. Carrie has refused to accept what Ron is telling her. She has refused the interpretation of her desires that he offers her because he, she finds it more convenient to remain unaware or not explicitly aware of the conflict among her desires that Ron, arguably correctly, has diagnosed him. 
My claim is that all that heaven allows explicitly presents the central dramatic issue as a conflict among Carrie's desires, between her love for Ron and her desire for the approval of her children and her social circle. It follows that the dramatic resolution of this issue, if it is resolved, which is by no means guaranteed in the Cirque film, will have to consist in her resolving this conflict by acknowledging those desires, identifying with one or more of them, and acting upon it. This in turn leads to two further questions about the film. How does Carrie come to acknowledge this tension in her desires? And how does she come to resolve it? In other words, how does Carrie acquire self-knowledge about this conflict among her desires? And how and one does she act upon this knowledge? How in general might one come to resolve what one wants, to resolve a conflict among one's desires? The natural answer, of course, is to reflect. And there is indeed quite a bit of reflection in all that heaven allows, if you will allow me a play on words, which will prove, I think, to be much more than nearly that. Mirrors, as they are in many Cirque films, are ubiquitous here. And it's worth pointing out for a moment, pausing for a moment, to consider their significance. There is a long tradition, going back to the Ur text of Cirque scholarship, his long interview with John Holliday, published as the book, the book Cirque on Cirque, of treating mirrors and mirror images as illusions as references to the theatrical and artificial world in which Cirque's characters live. And indeed, artifice and illusion are important themes in Cirque. But, if you will allow me to disagree with Cirque's own interpretation of his films for a moment, mirror images are not in general illusory. Mirror images are in many cases veridical, and because of this, mirrors can serve their original and central function as technologies of self-knowledge. Mirrors are, after all, how we knew what we looked like before they, there were selfies. There is no more canonical, even cliched way to indicate a moment of self-knowledge, or at least self-reflection in a character, than to have them look at themselves in the mirror. In All That Heaven Allows, we have three separate scenes in which the camera lingers on Carrie seen in mirror image, and each of them, I think, bears out the connection between mirrors and self-knowledge, and the thematic centrality of Carrie's self-knowledge. The first mirror scene occurs right before Carrie's date with Howard. Mother! Hey, mother! Here I am. Interestingly, her eyes avoid her own mirror image. Called by her children off screen, Carrie's eyes look up and in the right, in the mirror up and to the left, but they pointedly avoid the mirror itself. Carrie seems unwilling or unable to look herself in the mirror. She is unwilling or unable to acknowledge her desire for Ron. The second mirror scene occurs as Carrie is playing the piano, waiting for Ron to arrive, when Sarah unexpectedly shows up. We see Carrie's face reflected in the mirror, but again, she doesn't look into the mirror. Her eyes remain fixed with an ambiguous, mournful expression on something to her left. I take the object of her gaze to be the trophy on the mantelpiece, which will later be explicitly associated by Ned with her ex-husband and her putative obligation to his legacy. Carrie has already begun her relationship with Ron. Later in the scene, she will notably fail to disclose this to Sarah. Her unwillingness to look at her own face in the mirror here stands for her unwillingness to explicitly acknowledge the conflict she's experiencing between her desire for Ron who is going to arrive at any minute, and the life of comfortable respectability represented by her late husband's rowing trophy. I noticed watching the movie this time, they never say it's a rowing trophy. I just interpolated that because they're such wasps. 
It has to be a rowing trip. I know my kind. All right. In the third and final mirror scene, after she has broken with Ron, Carrie gazes devastated into the screen of the TV Ned has brought her for Christmas. You are right there on the screen. Drama, comedy, life's parade at your fingertips. Carrie has sacrificed her relationship with Ron in part to please her children. But Kay is happily engaged, having seemingly forgotten that she told her mother the relationship was destroyed by her liaison with Ron. Ned, meanwhile, confidently announces his plan to sell the family seat, totally unaware that he had strenuously objected to Carrie and Ron's plan to live somewhere other than father's house. Here, for the first time, Carrie looks at her mirror image in the TV screen. She has finally achieved a kind of self-transparency about her desires and what she has, what she has done. She has sacrificed her love for Ron to satisfy her selfish, foolish children at the gossipy, snobbish world of the country club set. Another way one might come to know what one truly wants is to consult a friend, a friend who knows you. Not for nothing does the author of the ancient text Magna Moralia, who may or may not be Aristotle, scholars are undecided, write that, as then, when we wish to see our own face, we do so by looking into the mirror. In the same way, when we wish to know ourselves, we can obtain that knowledge by looking at our friend. For the friend is, as we assert, a second self. And sure enough, all that heaven allows abounds in characters who present themselves as Carrie's friends and offer her what they claim is knowledge of herself. They offer themselves, in other words, as Carrie's mirror. But in every case, the self-knowledge they offer Carrie is false, or at least hollow, ineffective. Aside from Kay, whom we've discussed, and Sarah, who claims for herself the status of Carrie's best friend, i.e. the one who knows her, and thus presumably what she wants best, and Ron, to whom I will return in a moment, the person who accurately diagnoses the conflict among Carrie's desires and comes closest to helping her actually resolve this conflict is her doctor, Don. In doing so, he presents himself explicitly as Carrie's friend. Do you expect me to give you a prescription to cure life? Sit down, Carrie. I want to talk to you. Forget for a moment that I'm your doctor, and uh, let me give you some advice as a friend. Marry him. More than that, this scene emphasizes the theme of Carrie's self-knowledge, or lack of it. Don goes further than anyone else in explicitly stating the dramatic issue, a tension among Carrie's desires and makes a more plausible claim than anyone else to acknowledge, uh, to knowledge of those desires. Um, the key text here being something that somehow seems to have gotten missed, which is not that, but this. Well, there's no point in discussing that. Do you expect me to give you a prescription? I'm sorry, I, I had to redo all these bookmarks uh, because they were deleted. So I'll just, I'll just read out the relevant bit of a dialogue. Don says, you're punishing yourself. And Carrie says, for what? And Don says, for running away from like, life. Headaches are nature's way of making a protest. Carrie says, will you give me something for them? Okay. Now, interestingly, Don's, to some extent, correct diagnosis is not ultimately effective. Even if we read Carrie in this scene, as I think we should, as accepting Don's theory of the case, that she's being made sick by the conflict between her love for Ron and her desire for acceptability, 
Um, having heard this correct diagnosis, she makes no move to reestablish her relationship with Ron until Ron's friend Alita disabuses her of the idea that Ron is involved with the younger Marianne. I want to return to Alita in a second, who I take to be key here and very missable. But for now, just note that even armed with this new piece of knowledge about herself and about Ron, Carrie turns away at Ron's door, unable or unwilling to reconcile with him. The final, and of course most important figure in the film who presents himself as knowing what Carrie wants better than she does, is of course Ron himself. The pivotal, pivotal dramatic confrontation of the film takes the form of a dialogue about Carrie's desires, in which Ron offers her an interpretation of that conflict, which she again refuses. In the wake of the disastrous cocktail party, where Carrie had tried to win some kind of approval of her relationship with Ron, and after both Kay and Ned had expressed their adamant disapproval of the match, Carrie suggests that they delay their engagement in the hope that her children, and we are left to assume the country club's crowd as well, will eventually come around. My children's lives. I have a responsibility to them. Are you sure it's just that? Well, what do you mean? You don't think I care about the house and what people say? Yes, I do. Are you not even trying to understand? Ron is, I think, right here. Carrie does care about what people say. She wants both to be Ron's lover and to be approved of by her children and her society. But she refuses to acknowledge the latter desire and the conflict it engenders with the former. In a perfect turn of dramatic irony, she accuses Ron of failing to understand her, when it would be more accurate, though perhaps not fully accurate, to say that Ron understands her while Carrie fails to understand herself. This reversal, in which Carrie casts Ron in the very role she is herself playing, the one who fails to understand Carrie, is reinforced by the way the scene ends. Don't you see we could never be happy if we did? I can see that you don't want to listen to anybody's ideas but your own. And I can see that you're trying to make me choose between you and the children. No, Carrie. You're the one that made it a question of choosing. So you're the one that'll have to choose. As Ron points out, everything Carrie says of him is more appropriately said of her. One thing notable in this scene is how unknown to herself Carrie is here, and how comparatively, though by no means perfectly, well, Ron understands her. She is afraid of social disapproval, and is presenting her choice as a false dichotomy between ruining her children's lives and pausing her relationship with Ron as though the children will never come around to Ron, even if she marries him now, and as though their hysterics are to be taken seriously. But intriguingly, although Ron is comparatively less deceived about the situation, his knowledge is ineffective. Carrie is unable or unwilling to come to see the truth of what Ron is telling her here. Both the scene with Ron and the scene with Don the doctor show the limitations on the self-knowledge available from others, the self-knowledge available from mirrors. Even if Ron is in some sense right about what Carrie's conflict is, she refuses to take it up. Even if Carrie takes up what Don tells her about herself, she fails to act on it. Ron's failure to communicate his knowledge to Carrie is bound up with might be, what might be described as Ron's intransigence, his insistence that they live the way he wants to in his house, according to his principles. Indeed, Ron's smugness, his conviction that he knows how to live rightly and the people at the country club do not. This is not a mere personality flaw in Ron's character, but is thematically very important to the film, for Ron is presented as a Thoreauvian figure. While one might initially be inclined to dismiss this reference to Thoreau 
in a film where Carrie opens Walden at a random page and just happens to quote only the two most famous lines from it, which actually occur a hundred pages apart from one another, I think it is thematically crucial because Ron is said by Alida never to have read Walden, but to live it. This does not just mean that he is not an intellectual, but that Walden is being offered as a guide to his behavior by one of the people who knows him best. The significance of the first line from Walden is relatively clear in the film. The mass of men leave, lead lives of quiet desperation. The default state of humans, the state to which they succumb, unless through some positive effort on their own part, is a life of despair, perhaps covered over with the superficial trappings of happiness. The second line is much more ambiguous. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is per because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. Later, Alita offers Carrie a simple gloss, perhaps an oversimplified one, to thine own self be true, which I would spell out as to thine own desire be true. The problem, of course, Carrie's trouble, and our problem as well, is that it can be very difficult to know what thine own self is, what it desires. It can be very hard to hear one's own drummer over the din of the crowd and various false drummers who might present themselves as one's own, as the voice of one's own most self, as one's own true friend as a mirror. Ron himself makes clear the magnitude of the problem when he reports that even he, earlier presented by Alita as the very model of someone whose security comes from within, as someone who hearkens to the beat of his own drummer, could be tempted back into a life of quiet desperation, a life of inauthenticity, by the social pressure of Carrie's country club friends. And the claim that Ron is the living embodiment of Thoreauvian ideals is at least put seriously into question by his intransigence with Carrie. He seems to have forgotten that Carrie, too, has her own drummer and must hearken to it herself. She cannot be told what her true desire is by someone else. To do so would just be to duplicate the inauthentic life of the country club, but now with a different social set, the bohemian middle-class set of Mick and Alita rather than the haute bourgeois world of Sarah and Mona, and with a different interior design aesthetic, mid-century modernism rather than the stuffy, almost suffocating interiors of Carrie's and Sarah's homes and the country club. This would not be inauthenticity, but merely a simulacrum of it. Carrie must determine her desire for herself. If we cannot know what our own most self desires merely by reflecting on it, and we cannot know by having our desires reflected back to us by our friends, our other selves, in the words of the Magna Moralia, how then are we to know what our authentic desire is, rather than the desires we have assimilated from our social world by imitation? How are we to hear the beat of our own drummer? The mirror, the vehicle at best of ineffective self-knowledge, contrasts with another optic metaphor in all that heaven allows, the window. The first thing that Carrie comments on in Ron's first dwelling is that it is a house of glass, a greenhouse, literally a house of windows. When Ron renovates the old mill, its most notable feature to which Carrie explicitly draws attention and to which Cirque's camera is almost ineluctably drawn is a massive picture window. I'd also note in this context that a notable feature of Mick and Alita's house is a large uh, a window in the roof, uh, sun, a sunroof. So their space looks out into the world, while the country club is completely devoid of windows, and the main feature of uh, the living room where many of the domestic scenes happen in Carrie's house is a, is a large mirror, no windows. The difference between a mirror and a window is, of course, that a mirror reflects one backs to oneself while a window lets you see outside yourself, 
A window is a vehicle for knowledge of the world. With that thought in mind, remember that what prompts Carrie's initial unsuccessful reconciliation with Ron is a piece of knowledge about the world. Alida tells her that Marianne is engaged to someone else, dispelling Carrie's fantasy, born of sexual insecurity, that she and Ron are an item. And the final resolution, insofar as it is a resolution, is again prompted by Alida, informing Carrie about something in the world, Ron's fall and injury. This suggests that the central dramatic issue of the film, the tension among Carrie's desires and the need for her to resolve this tension, to act decisively on behalf of one or the other, will not and cannot be resolved by Carrie's acquisition merely of further self-knowledge, but can only be resolved by Carrie learning something about the world, about the consequences and the condition of her acting on one or another of her desires. What Carrie learns over the course of the film is not merely the conflict among her desires. She learns that her children are selfish monsters, and furthermore, that their own happiness does not depend nearly as much as they earlier claimed it did on whether or not she ends up with Ron. She learns that her country club friends, with the notable exception of Sarah, will not even make an attempt at accommodating Ron, that her relationship will remain scandalous, a figure of mockery and gossip. Carrie learns, in other words, that the world to whose values she was willing to sacrifice her love with Ron is not a home for her. It makes no place for her. It is indifferent to her happiness. Theirs is a world in which the only life for her is a life of quiet desperation. This suggests that self-knowledge, knowledge of one's true desire, one's drummer, is not mere knowledge of one's psychological states, which can be neatly cleaved off from knowledge of the world. Carrie's path to self-knowledge is inextricably bound up with knowledge of the world. If this is right, if the dramatic action of the film does not merely consist in Carrie's acquisition of self-knowledge narrowly construed, but that knowledge as bound up with knowledge of her world, then we have to ask ourselves, what does Carrie learn by the end of the film? This requires us to confront the deeply ambiguous ending, the possibility that the ending does not represent the reconciliation of two lovers, but something much darker, a false happy ending that some scholars think is characteristic of Cirque's melodramas. This is connected to a deeper ambiguity at the heart of all that heaven allows, the sense, not unfounded, shared by many viewers that Carrie and Ron's relationship is something more sinister than it first appears. <coughs> Carrie learns from Alita that Ron is injured and rushes to his side. When she enters the renovated old mill, she is astonished to find that Ron has further renovated it, put so much beauty into it, as she says. Alita tells her this is because Ron never stopped hoping she'd return, that they'd make this their home. The ambiguous status of that beauty and the old mill as their home will reemerge in a moment as critical. Standing over Ron, asleep or maybe even comatose, Carrie summarizes the whole dramatic action of the film up to this point. You told me once that Ron was so secure within himself because he refused to give importance to unimportant things. Why did it take me so long to understand it? Remember, I told you it took us a long time to find the right answer? It doesn't happen overnight. I feel like such a coward. I was so frightened I listened to other people. I let others make my decisions. Alita, I've let so many people come between us. Friends, neighbors, children. And the strangest one of all, myself. 
that if, if there's one line that I want to be the tagline for this talk, it's the strangest one of all, myself. Carrie's apparently paradoxical statement that she has come between Ron and herself is rendered coherent when we recall Alita's oversimplified distillation of Thoreau. Carrie has let her false self, the self that she has borrowed secondhand from her family and her friends, get between Ron and what she now identifies as her true self, her inner drummer. Cirque warns us, however, not to take this straightforwardly as a triumph, as Carrie discovering her authentic inner self, as freeing herself from the grip of her children and her own need to conform through an irreducibly ambiguous ending. The next morning, Carrie stands in front of those picture windows previously closed by Alita, but now wide open, staring down at the sleeping Ron. Now that deer, not very subtly clear, subtly symbolizes Ron's connection to nature, a connection that authorizes his status as a Thoreauvian figure, his attachment to the natural and authentic, as opposed to the artificial and false world of the town and the country club. Now, looking at this image, is Carrie coming between Ron and nature? Is Carrie cutting Ron off from his symbolic connection to nature, his authenticity, perhaps even from his masculinity? The previously strong independent Ron is now presented as an invalid to be cared for by Carrie, the nurse slash mother figure. But what does home mean here? Does it mean that Carrie has finally discovered her authentic self, has learned to hearken to her own drummer, is now where she belongs with Ron, who has spoken for her own most desire all along, even if she did not, and perhaps should not have heard him? Or does it mean that Ron's house has become her home? It is hard not to note that the old mill, previously a model of rustic simplicity, has in the meantime come to resemble much more closely Carrie's own house. It now has all the accoutrements of haute bourgeois comfort, a bookshelf lined with leather-bound volumes, possibly purchased merely for decoration, paintings of wildlife and landscapes, tasteful knickknacks visible in the background. It has come to look like my apartment. Has, <laughs> has Ron done precisely, with, with that minus the tastefulness, has Ron done precisely what Alita claimed could never be done, but which he admitted was possible? Has he diverted has he been diverted from his inner drummer, forced by the pressure of his overwhelming passion for Carrie to devote himself to unimportant things? Or to reject the false dichotomy that lies between those two possibilities, does the transformation of Ron's house and his transformation from rugged hunter and woodsman to patient represent not a surrender of either of them, but a reconciliation, a mutual movement towards one another, a softening, in part, even a feminization of the previously self-absorbed and smug Ron, and a simultaneous abandonment by Carrie of her plans to live on the terms set by her friends and family. The film does not answer these questions for us. The final shot of the film can be read in 
any of these ways. The deer is on the outside, looking in. Does the presence of the deer mean that nature, the symbolic source of Ron's authenticity, now authorizes their union? Is the deer signaling its approval of this couple? Or does the fact that the deer is on the other side, shut out by the window, not part of their new home, mean that their reunion has been achieved one-sidedly on Carrie's terms, that she has succeeded in winning Don over to the values he initially rejected, admittedly in his own house, but a house made up to be a near simulacrum of hers? Cirque does not say. I want to end by returning to the thought that the unresolved dramatic action of the film is not merely Carrie coming to knowledge of herself, but her doing so by coming to knowledge of the world around her. For what we don't know at the end, what Cirque's camera leaves ambiguous, is not only what Carrie wants, the kind of relationship now, she now envisages with Ron, but what scope the world will allow for what Carrie wants, what terms it will offer for the achievement of her desire. Will Ron allow her enough space to truly hearken to her own drummer? Or will he continue to exist, to insist, dogmatically, that she listen to his? Will a reconciliation with the children be possible? Or are they the emotional vampires that at their worst moments they seem to be? Are any of Carrie's other friendships salvageable? Or is the price of friendship with even the relatively sympathetic Sarah the drowning of one's own authentic self in an ocean of conformity and compromise? We do not know unambiguously what Carrie wants at the end of the film, and Carrie herself may not know. And that is because we do not know, and Carrie does not know, whether she has achieved what she wants, and whether she will be able to. Indeed, whether heaven will allow it. Thank you very much.